had a United States Marshals plane, we had a United States Air Force plane, and still, with the weather, we weren't able to get there. U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland has a uniquely Alaska experience during his visit. From Alaska Public Media, this is Statewide News on Alaska News Nightly for Wednesday, August 23rd. Good evening, I'm Casey Grove. Also tonight, a small fire on the ferry Columbia sent some passengers to the hospital for smoke inhalation. We're assuming some sort of electrical malfunction, or maybe it was just too close to the the cardboard cases of beer. We don't know. Those stories and more tonight on Alaska News Nightly. Alaska News Nightly is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. Whether this is your first try to quit or you've been down this path before, Alaska's Tobacco Quit Line can help you quit for good. Get help creating a plan that is right for you no matter if you smoke cigarettes, vape, use smokeless tobacco, or ICMIC. With options like calling a coach, receiving text messages, and nicotine replacement therapy with patches or gum, you can quit your way at any time of day or night. Call Alaska's Tobacco Quit Line at 1-800-QUIT-NOW or visit alaskaquitline.com. This message sponsored by Alaska's Tobacco Quit Line. The U.S. Attorney General yesterday experienced what Alaskans in remote villages experience all the time. Mayor Garland got weathered out of a flight to Huslia, a tiny community on the Kayakuk River in interior Alaska. Alaska Senator Lisa Murkowski, who traveled with Garland, says she's not in the habit of wishing visitors to Alaska bad weather. But it was a reminder that when something happens, when there is a tragedy or a threat or something that requires public safety intervention in a community that is not accessible and weather shuts in, there is no plan B. Rain and strong winds canceled Garland's flight to Huslia, which is only accessible by air and water. Garland says the challenges of Alaska weather were not something he could have fully appreciated without experiencing it. We had a United States Marshals plane. We had a United States Air Force plane. And still, with the weather, we weren't able to get there. I can't imagine what would happen in a circumstance if there was an emergency. Garland was able to meet with tribal leaders in Galena, another interior Alaska community. He also attended a roundtable hosted by the Alaska Federation of Natives in Anchorage, where he announced funding to help tribes improve their public safety and justice systems. The meeting was closed to the media, but Michelle Demert, a longtime tribal court judge, says there was a lot at stake for Alaska Native people who experienced some of the highest rates of violence in the country. Alaska tribes have not gotten the same resources across the board when it comes to essential governmental services, and it's time for them to pony up. Demert is the not invisible commissioner of the University of Alaska Fairbanks Tribal Governance Program. She called the meeting groundbreaking because Garland acknowledged Alaska tribes as democratic institutions, their need for support, and their importance to the nation. A fire broke out early Wednesday morning aboard an Alaska Marine Highway System ferry traveling through the Wrangell Narrows. As KSTK's Sage Smiley reports, the fire sent almost a dozen passengers and crew to Wrangell's hospital to be treated for smoke inhalation. Looking at the ferry Columbia from the shore in Wrangell at about 11.45 in the morning on Wednesday, there didn't appear to be anything amiss. That is, except that the 418-foot ferry wasn't supposed to be in Wrangell. The Columbia should have left for Ketchikan at 6.15 that morning, but an overnight fire in its bar delayed the ship as 11 people were taken off the ferry to be medically evaluated. Stephen Harrison is a crew member on the Columbia. He was part of the fire response team. 
In the bar last night at 3.15 in the morning, there was a, a general alarm went off and they said that it was not a, a drill, which is pretty obvious at 3.15, we wouldn't have a drill in the middle of the Wrangell Narrows. So all of the, all the people on Fire Team 1, we jumped up and ran for our fire suits. They told us to get dressed and we all donned our fire suits, put on our oxygen tanks and went on oxygen because the ship was filling up with smoke. By the time Harrison got to the fire, he says it had already mostly been extinguished by another crew member. But there was still smoldering, so we took water in and sprayed down the bar. So there's a lot of dirt and debris and ashes in the bar mixed with the ABC fire extinguisher stuff. So it kind of made a little bit of a mess and it's going to take us a while to clean up. Harrison says his six-person fire team was using supplemental oxygen, which helped them avoid the effects of smoke inhalation. But other crew and passengers felt the effects. Shannon McCarthy is a spokesperson for Alaska's Department of Transportation, which oversees the ferry system. The crew reacted pretty quickly, but out of an abundance of caution, they wanted to make sure that anyone that was nearby got seen for smoke inhalation. Emergency medical services in Wrangell transported 11 people to the local hospital for treatment. All the patients had been treated and released from the Wrangell Medical Center by early afternoon, according to a hospital spokesperson. And McCarthy says all 11 reboarded the ship and continued south. Harrison says he thinks the fire didn't cause any serious damage to the ship. We lost 10 cases of Alaska white beer. Honestly, that's, that's the extent of the damage. It's not totally clear how the fire started. Harrison says the working theory is that an ice machine in the bar area started the fire. We're assuming some sort of electrical malfunction or maybe it was just too close to the, to the cardboard cases of beer. We don't know. The Columbia came back into regular service on the Alaska Marine Highway in mid-February after being docked for three years as a cost-saving measure. The 49-year-old vessel is the largest of the Marine Highway's four mainline ferries, serving larger communities with cabins and berths for longer journeys. The Columbia was briefly tied up for repairs earlier this summer after crew noticed issues with one of its thrusters and leaking pipes in the ship's fire suppression system. It's not the only ferry that's experienced mechanical issues recently. The Hubbard was waylaid by generator issues earlier this month. The Alaska Marine Highway is running thin, with five of its nine ferries in service as of August 23rd. The Kennecott, Taslina, and Madaniska are in layup in the boatyard in Ketchikan, and the Latuya is in overhaul until August 24th. Harrison says he's proud of the response of the Columbia crew and fire team. It proved to us that we actually could respond and do what we need to do in the amount of time that we needed to do it. Um, and it all went out really well. It, it was a great drill. I mean, it was. It was a live fire drill, basically. Mm -hmm. The Columbia left Wrangell heading south just after noon Wednesday after passengers and crew returned from receiving treatment. DOT doesn't expect the fire to cause any delay to the ship's schedule. It's expected to arrive in Bellingham on Friday morning. In Wrangell, I'm Sage Smiley. The Anchorage Assembly has rejected putting millions of dollars towards a large homeless shelter. The proposal from Mayor Dave Bronson's administration called for more than $11 million in funding to complete the partially constructed shelter in East Anchorage. The project would have provided emergency shelter for up to 200 people and navigation services. At last night's assembly meeting, North Anchorage Assembly member Daniel Voland raised concerns about funding, both the source of some of the money and putting cash toward a structure that may not be sound. We are being asked to spend so much money, so much taxpayer money on this project. 
a structure that we don't even, don't even know will meet building code, be approved by our acting building official. Um, and diverting a lot of money from things that are, are very necessary. Other assembly members also expressed concerns over how much it would cost to operate the shelter, a total that was not provided by the mayor's administration and the timeline. The shelter would not have been built by this winter. The East Anchorage shelter has been one of Mayor Bronson's priorities since taking office. His administration directed millions of dollars of work on the project last year without assembly approval, which led to the assembly suspending the project. The assembly ultimately voted 9-3 to three in opposition to the project. At a press conference today, Bronson said he was disappointed by the vote. We now have and we will have no shelter for uh, far too many people this winter. Um, that was the last opportunity. The city shut down the shelter at the Sullivan Arena earlier this year, sending hundreds of people to camp outside. After last night's vote, assembly members introduced a plan to put more money towards the Bronson administration's emergency cold weather sheltering plan, which involves using hotels, churches, and nonprofits for extra rooms and temporary beds. Some of the funding would come from money set aside for the shelter. Bronson says he supports the conversion of other buildings to housing for homeless people, but he says it won't be enough without a shelter. To focus on housing first, an extreme or an exclusive approach to that, that's, that's going to fail. Because at the end of the day, someone has to enter into housing from somewhere, and it's not just the street. The Assembly will take up funding for the cold weather plan that does not include the construction of a new shelter on September 12th. Still to come on Alaska News Nightly, a rural Alaska airline celebrates 70 years of business. The uh, reason that my parents started this business was to assist their friends and families in the rural communities. That's ahead. Stay with us. Alaska News Nightly is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. You know that eating fruits and vegetables supports good health. But did you also know that frozen and canned produce offers the same health benefits as fresh. It's true. Whether fresh, frozen, canned, or from the land, eating fruits and veggies can lead to a long and healthy life. So when it comes to getting the fruits and veggies you need to stay healthy, remember, every bite counts. This message sponsored by SNAP. Two Tennessee hikers who survived more than a week in the woods near Chena Hot Springs, east of Fairbanks, are back at home reflecting on what happened and grateful for search and rescue personnel. KUAC's Dan Bross spoke to one of the hikers about their experience and has this report. 50-year-old Jonas Bear and longtime friend and travel partner, 37-year-old Cynthia Hofsepian, set out for a day hike from Chena Hot Springs Resort on August 10th. By simple bad choices, a three-hour hike that led to an eight-day survival. Bear says they followed a loop trail that took them into a burn area where they lost the path. You can't tell between the burn marks and the actual trail. He says they became disoriented and ended up hiking through jumbles of fallen trees and marshy tussocks. Giant pillows that you, as soon as you took a step in, you had to take all the energy just to pull your foot back out to step up again. This is exhausting. Bear says they ate the few snacks they carried by Saturday, August 12th, and were cautious about eating wild berries, but the primary issue was thirst. Food never was an issue. We never thought about it. We never dealt with it. We never felt the hunger. We just we just wanted to keep moving. But water was so, we just seemed like we could not drink enough water. We were so thirsty all the time. 
Bear says they stayed primarily along a creek for access to water, but made forays away from it to look for a way out. He says they built fires to warm up and get dry following frequent rains. We made a camp over the eight days, four different places to reassess what we had to do. We ran across a couple bears and uh, nothing was really scary for us, but you know, we, we were very vigilant about our surroundings all through the night. You can't sleep. You have to keep the fire going. You just take little breaks here and there and you just keep pushing. Bear regrets not bringing their cell phones or some other communication or signaling device. He calculates they were no more than about six miles from the resort at any time and says they saw search aircraft. They were just miles away in another range and there's no way we could ever get to them. So we made a smog fire, try to smoke them out. Nothing would seem to work. By the night of Thursday, August 17th, Bear says they were weak and becoming hypothermic. We knew, like, if we didn't get out of there on our own accord, we were dead. He says Hofsepian, who is visually impaired, was faring worse. She's physically done. She can't see. She can't climb. So I I made her a huge uh, safe area with firewood back up. I said, I'll be back in five hours. That was Friday the 18th. Bear says he hiked north. We have a general idea of about 20% chance it has to be this way because we eliminated all the other options at this point. Bear says he eventually found a trail, ran into two people walking, and made it back to the hot springs. There's all these people here, and then my, my dad was there from Ohio. He flew in on Wednesday uh, just to help with the search. He didn't even recognize me. <laughs> and that's probably the picture a lot of people have seen on the media. He is in shock, and I am in shock. Bear says he guided law enforcement, military, and search and rescue personnel who used a helicopter and ATV to find and bring Hosepian back to China Hot Springs. He thanks everyone who participated in the week-long search effort. There's so many people, and you understand, we were dazed and confused Friday night, and I could not interact enough with everyone to get everybody's names and all that and faces, but these people have to be recognized. Bear and Hosepian spent the weekend recovering before flying home to Tennessee Sunday night. He says Alaska is the 50th state they've visited together. Getting lost prevented them from seeing some other parts of the state, and he says they plan to come back. In Fairbanks, I'm Dan Bross. Devil's Thumb sits just across the water from Petersburg, a monolith of ice and granite. Until recently, the mountain had never been climbed by someone born and raised in Petersburg. Kyle Knight reached the summit after a lifetime of watching the mountain and dreaming of the climb. KFSK's Hannah Floor has the story. Devil's Thumb rises to 9,000 feet above sea level, part of the boundary mountains of the Stikine Ice Field. Mountaineer Dieter Close has spent more time exploring the thumb than anyone else. He came to Petersburg to climb it in 1980 and eventually made Petersburg his home. Like my son said, Petersburg wouldn't be the same without Devil's Thumb, you know, and I think for everybody, we see this beautiful thing that's like inspiring, it's, it's daunting, it's, it's aberrant, and it just instills this wonder in climbers and not. In cloudy, misty southeast Alaska, the peak isn't visible most of the time, so it's shorthand. When people say, you can see the thumb, that means good weather, blue skies. The mountain's remote location and extreme conditions make it notorious among rock and ice climbers. It's been summited fewer than 50 times since Fred Becky first climbed it in 1946. The classic eastern ridge is sometimes referred to as the easy route. 
but that's only in comparison to the icy northwest face, which remains unclimbed. Three people have died in the attempt. To locals, the thumb is as much a part of Petersburg as the rain and the smell of fish in summertime. That's part of the reason that 35-year-old Kyle Knight wanted to climb the mountain. I think that's what makes it so special or significant to me is that that's a peak that's been dominating the skyline from a very young age. And, you know, it's totally striking. I know that everybody has some sort of a relationship with that skyline. His interest started in middle school when he found an old climbing magazine from the 70s in his parents' library. It was an account of a climbing party's first descent of the north ridge of the north face of Devil's Thumb. was just totally enamored with that story of their adventure in the landscape. But when Knight was young, and even after he started climbing in his teens, summoning Devil's Thumb seemed more like a dream than a realistic goal. I felt like that was sort of the... uh, the realm of the world-class alpinist, and um, a challenge and a, and a risk level that I wasn't going to be able to develop the skills to be comfortable with. But the skills came. Knight became friends with people who had climbed Devil's Thumb. After high school, he moved to the lower 48 and climbed constantly. The dream became a stated goal. It would take another 15 years to achieve the goal. That's partly because the best time to climb the mountain is May through August when there's less chance of avalanches and rockfall. Knight is a fisherman and spends summers in Bristol Bay. But this year, a close friend with lots of experience on the mountain was visiting Petersburg. They decided they would attempt the climb in August after Knight returned from fishing. Even in summer, storms can make an ascent of Devil's Thumb impossible. But the pair lucked out with a tight window of good weather within days of Knight's return. They took a helicopter to base camp where they spent the night At about 7 a.m., they roped up and began their climb of the direct east ridge. Knight says he often tried to block out the view on the way up. It's scary. (laughs) So so by focusing just on the moves themselves, you can avoid that fear. They reached the top around dinner time. I totally felt satisfaction. But also I know that uh, getting to the top is only halfway because you got to get back down and you never want to feel so satisfied that you lose that sense of focus. Knight says the summit is a boulder about the size of a van. The actual top of it is just big enough for one person to sit astride with 6,000 feet of exposure down on either side below your feet. They spent about two minutes taking in the view and snapping photos. It was 2 a.m. before they were back at base camp. Knight says their slow speed could have been due to his training or lack thereof. He had a very specific training regimen in the months leading up to the climb. Bristol Bay sockeye salmon fishing. (laughs) Lots and lots of crawling in and out of the engine room. But it took longer than expected for another reason. There's a lot of newly exposed rock where in the past there had been snowfields. That rock hasn't had time to settle, which means it's loose and dangerous. Knight says the descent in the dark was a risk that he was comfortable taking just once. Yeah, I did it once. I don't really want to do it again. But trying the thumb again? Knight says he gives it a solid maybe. A big part of wanting to do it is looking at it for all these years. and Now I can look up there and know that I have been up there. Veteran climber Dieter Close is thrilled that Knight summited the mountain. He's the first person that grew up in Petersburg and climbed Devil's Thumb. In my mind, that's the beginning of, of a legend in Petersburg. One thing is for sure, it's not the last mountain Knight will climb. He plans to keep fishing every summer and climbing the rest of the year. In Petersburg, I'm Hannah Floor. 
Alaska News Nightly is brought to you in part by Alaska Air Cargo, serving the commerce and business needs of 20 Alaska communities, from Adak to Barrow to Ketchikan. More information at alaskacargo.com. What gives you strength? Strength comes from teaching the Alaskan way of life, getting wood, fishing, hunting, helping people in the community, and being an example for the next generation. If you have forgotten your strength, remember, there's hope, there's joy, there's love, there's peace everywhere. Share what gives you strength at recoveralaska.org slash share your strength. This message sponsored by Recover Alaska. Denali National Park and Preserve officials are on the lookout for a misbehaving black bear that rummaged through a camper's tent last Friday at the Riley Creek Campground. No one was injured, and our rangers went out and they tried to haze the bear by yelling, grouping up, and even deploying bear spray. Park spokesperson Sharon Steitler said Monday that the bear eventually left the area, but she says it has since returned to Riley Creek, so park officials are now diverting campers with tents to different campgrounds. For the next few days, we've imposed uh, a soft-sided tent restriction at Riley Creek. You can only come in if you have uh, a hard-sided vehicle or camper or trailer. Steitler says the restriction will be in place through this week. During that time, wildlife rangers will be on the lookout for bears that have been spotted around the Murie Science and Learning Center and other areas inside and outside of the park. There's been an uptick of black bear sightings this summer, uh, not only around Riley Creek and Triple Lakes, but there's also been a black bear uh, around McKinley Village. Steitler says the safety of park visitors is the highest priority. Park staff want to discourage the bears from rustling food or trash from campgrounds before resorting to relocating them or more serious measures. The aviation company Ryanair, which serves most of western Alaska, celebrated its 70th birthday last week. As KOTZ's Desiree Hagen reports, while the family-owned company has changed a lot over the decades, its commitment to rural Alaska aviation has remained. Wilfred Ryan Jr. has been with Ryanair all of his life. Literally. His parents started the aviation company the year he was born. But I was born into the company, so I've actually been with the company since birth. Now he's 70 years old, and so is Ryan Eyre. He's outside of the company's hangar on a recent windy afternoon and just finished eating a hot dog at an event celebrating the milestone. Ryan has watched the company grow his entire life. His parents started it with a single plane. And now Ryan Eyre has a 20-plane fleet that serves over 70 remote Alaska villages. Ryan is the chair of the company's board and says over the years, he's remained committed to serving rural Alaska. And that's the plan for the future, too. The um, reason that my parents started this business was to assist um, their friends and families in the rural communities. And I hope I've instilled that same value into my son. And uh, I hope we carry it on for a third generation. Ryan says for his dad, as a young adult in rural Alaska during the 1940s, flying was a dream. My father saw his first airplane when he was a teenager, and he always wanted to become a pilot. 
Power B didn't have the resources to, to uh, fund himself personally to become a pilot. He says many Alaska Native pilots, like his father, were able to pursue flying thanks to military service during World War II through the GI Bill. Ryan says being indigenous and having a connection to the land helped. Many of those those pioneer Native pilots started their career mushing dogs. And then because they knew the territory from the, from the ground, it became very easy for them to navigate through the air. And, and they all had that innate sense of direction. Before learning to fly, Ryan's father ran dog teams during World War II for the Alaska Territorial Guard. Ryan's grandfather delivered mail from Unalakleet to Caltag by dog sled in the winter and by foot in the summer, until his job was replaced by planes. Ryan says his father, who flew for Alaska Airlines after the war, wanted to return to his home community. It was his motivation for starting the company. And uh, he didn't want to live in Anchorage because he loved the bush. He grew up in Unicleet, born and raised there. And uh, the only way he could stay in the, in the village and, and provide a life for the family that he was raising was to remain and be a pilot. Ryan's father started his aviation company in 1953, then based out of Unalakleet and called Unalakleet Air Taxi. Ryan eventually took over the company from his dad and continued to grow it. By the late 1970s, he had expanded service beyond the Norton Sound region, changing its name to Ryan Air. By the late 80s, Ryan Air was the largest commuter carrier in Alaska. Then, in 1987, everything changed. A Ryan airplane departing from Kodiak crashed in Homer, killing 18 of the 21 people on board and leading the Federal Aviation Administration to shut down the airline the next year. Following the crash, the company switched from passenger service to cargo only. Over the years, Ryan says the aviation industry has changed considerably, from being goal-oriented to focusing more on safety. I like the environment that we're in today, where we have um, we have weather reporting stations, uh, new and improved runways, and uh, good lighting systems. He credits investments in rural infrastructure for some of the changes. And Ryan Air has changed, too. Now the company employs about 150 people and continues to operate mostly cargo planes, with one exception, a passenger service that runs out of the YK Delta community of Antioch. We serve 72 communities from Point Hope to Platinum out of eight hubs of operations. A few years ago, Ryan turned the company over to his son, Lee, who now serves as Ryan Air's president. He says while he still enjoys his time in the sky, his favorite thing is following his father's vision of serving the friends and family in rural Alaska. I enjoy most about flying is uh, the people that we serve. Over my you know, five decades of flying in western Alaska and throughout Alaska, I cherish the friendships that I have made. And those friendships, he says, are lasting ones. In Kotzebue, I'm Desiree Hagen. And that's all for this edition of Alaska News Nightly. If you missed any of tonight's stories, we're online at alaskapublic.org and wherever you get your podcasts. 
We had reports tonight from Rhonda McBride and Wesley Early in Anchorage, Sage Smiley in Wrangell, Dan Bross in Fairbanks, Hannah Floor in Petersburg, Riley Board in Kenai, Tim Ellis in Delta Junction, and Desiree Hagen in Kotzebue. If you want to send us a news tip, question, or comment, email us at news at alaskapublic.org. Our audio engineer is Chris Hyde, Tim Rocky is our producer, and I'm Casey Grove. Good night. Alaska News Nightly was made possible by Northern Air Cargo, providing cargo transportation to nine Alaska communities. NAC offers options including cargo charters to get freight where it needs to be. Northern Air Cargo, serving Alaska since 1956. And by Span Elite, providing same-day shipping of groceries from Anchorage to rural Alaska. Online ordering at SpanElite.com. This is Statewide News on Alaska Public Media.